And I don't normally do this, um, as you may have heard in some of my previous episodes, you know, my goal is to make this entire thing organic, spur of the moment, sort of, you know, unscripted, not cutting, cutting videos or audio or editing for content or anything like that. The only editing I do, right, is for essentially listenability or to make it listenable. But having just recorded another cryptocurrency episode, then less than 12 hours after that, we get this big news of the largest cryptocurrency hack or theft, heist, whatever you want to call it, in history. And so I felt like it was just prudent to do a little bit of an add-on episode here to just follow up on how that sort of impacts everything that I was discussing just a few minutes ago, regular episode for this. And the hack was, well, there's a lot more known about it now than there was when it first came out, but it's something like 600 million. And one of those exchanges, so I, I mentioned briefly that, you know, these exchanges where you have to pool, well, not pool maybe, but if you want to transfer your cryptocurrency to any kind of real money, you have to go to what's called an exchange. And you remember how I kind of was talking about individuals driving the cryptocurrency sort of investing as opposed to how the stock market works. Because it's fun for them and they can just do it a little bit at a time. And what that really means is that kind of right now, for the most part, cryptocurrency is a lot like baseball cards in that, you know, if you have the right one, it might be worth a lot to a small set of people, but it's literally valueless to somebody else. Um, and so, right, with a baseball card, it may have no value to you. You can buy it from someone and then resell it to somebody else who valued it. So in, in that sense, there is some inherent value in cryptocurrency in just that it is a item that somebody values. So somebody could sell it to somebody eventually. But the number of people who are actually using or exchanging hard money, or what they call fiat money, for cryptocurrency is a relatively small number of people worldwide compared to, you know, how many people, at least in the United States percentage-wise, have something like a 401k or some other stock market or financial instrument-based investments. And because of that, in this small world, um, you have very few places to actually exchange cryptocurrency for real money. And because you can't buy stuff with cryptocurrency, it that's what makes it be like a baseball card or like a valuable piece of artwork, maybe, is a, is a better example. Because when we're going to talk about this theft, you know, what this exchange did or what they suggested was they really just panic and you know they're on the hook for 600 million dollars i don't know whether they have insurance i don't know where this exchange was based um you know it's kind of an unregulated in uh industry and the very least you know if they did something negligent just about anybody at least in the united states probably also at least in great britain would have the ability to file a lawsuit under just about you know a whole host of different types of claims against that exchange, I mean, you know, the result would basically be they probably file bankruptcy and they never have enough money to pay that back. And so those people were just out. 
um, the value of those cryptocurrencies that were stolen. And what I had mentioned previously is that these exchanges um, were really allowing governments to track and really destroy, you know, the, the security and the privacy of any kind of cryptocurrency transaction because while you can keep a wallet, you know, a crypto wallet, and no one ever has to know who owns that, if you pull money out of exchange, someone's going to know about it. Just because those exchanges deal with real money, they have real rules in the financial market. So anywhere there's an interface between the cryptocurrency markets, the a, a real money place, right, for lack of a better term, that privacy is going to get destroyed, right? And so um, what happens now because of that, and, and in, like philosophies on this can differ, but the hackers can't really ever get the money for what they stole. Because they're going to have to go to an exchange and get money for it, which requires them to become known at that point, basically. So when you move money or cryptocurrency from a, from a wallet, crypto wallet, which can be anonymous, you can have privacy, no one knows who has it. All that is known is that on the blockchain itself, the blockchain itself knows that a certain amount of a certain cryptocurrency was sent and held in value in that wallet, and it hasn't gone anywhere since then. All of that information is on the blockchain, and it's fully transparent, and it can't be changed. But no one knows who the no one knows who owns the wallet, right? As we talked about. But what good is that? You can't use it for anything. And because we're at this point where you you know you can't pay your rent with cryptocurrency, you can't pay your mortgage. Some countries are slowly moving in this direction with certain things like Bitcoin and whatnot. But um, still, if you think about, even if you were going to pay your mortgage with cryptocurrency. You're going to have an exact amount, and it's going to go directly to your mortgage company, and so it would not your your mortgage company would have to know that you paid them, and so it wouldn't be that difficult for the mortgage company to figure out what wallet was yours because you would know which wallet the cryptocurrency came from, which wallet it arrived at at the mortgage company. The mortgage company is going to take real money back out of it because that's what their whole existence is based on. And from there, right, it's just completely traceable back to that original wallet. Because they, unless, you know, unless someone's randomly paying somebody else's mortgage for them, the mortgage owner is going to be the one that sent that money. And this whole thing, as I talked about, kind of destroys that whole purpose of decentralization. And, right, and again, the privacy and the ability to be anonymous, those exist in crypto wallets, but your transactions don't take the benefit of that. And so really, you know, if you could move Theoretically, you could move cryptocurrency back and forth to different parties on a private basis, and no one would ever know who those were. You know, like I could send right now cryptocurrency to my friend Doug somewhere if he gives me his wallet address, and no one will ever know, regardless of what's on the blockchain, that it was either me or Doug who had either of those wallets. So they're not going to know. They're going to know that there was a wallet that a certain amount of funds went to, but no one's going to know who that is. The only way that those wallets get revealed is when they somehow get interfaced with a real money place um, because of the rules that are in place. And right now, there's not enough people out there accepting cryptocurrency as tender for things. And so it's kind of, its value is only in those who give it value, just like stolen art. And just like with stolen art, when someone steals a piece of artwork, they can't really sell it. Now, there might be a black market for it. So, for example, 
you know, someone steals a piece of artwork worth a million dollars, can't go to normal art auctions where, like, wealthy people buy art because they have a whole international police force, basically, that looks for stolen art like this. Um, and it would get found out. So the only way you could sell stolen artwork is through an underground or a black market, right? Or somebody somewhere with a briefcase full of cash that's going to hand it to you. You cannot use um, a public-facing entity to sell stolen artwork. And that's basically what they're trying to create with um, this hack and, and this theft of cryptocurrency. And that's what the, com- the company came out and said, hey, you know, these wallets that stole all this, or, you know, this hack happened, and all we know what wallets these, these all this money went to, we just don't know who owns the wallets. So they were asked to blacklist these wallets so those funds could never be used again or transferred anywhere else other than those wallets. Now, Clearly, that was a knee-jerk reaction, and, right, an elementary or, or very childish response is going to say, well, that kind of sounds like a good idea, right? You could be get their money back. And here's what the reality is. You don't know who those walls were. Somebody could have hacked in, right, and transferred all that money to some charity. Right? You can go online and look for all kinds of places to donate cryptocurrency. And all you have to do is pick one of those wallet addresses if you hack in and you're going to send money to a wallet address, you could just send it to some random person you want to donate it to. And so unsuspectingly, you would be blacklisting a bunch of random people's wallets who had nothing to do with the hack, nothing to do with the heist. Now maybe, you know, there's an argument that they're now in possession of, of some money that they're not entitled to. You know, that really lazy, short-circuit idea of just blacklisting wallets, it's like turning banks off, right? It's bad for the system and it's a bad idea and it defeats the whole point of, you know, cryptocurrency and decentralization in the first place. And in fact, the fact that all these exchanges are being hacked like this is a reason not to keep your money in these exchanges. And the problem is, well, I don't say the problem. What I suspect actually goes on out there, and I'm sure there's some places where this happens, is, you know, you almost get like an informal auction forum somewhere, or maybe like a Discord server, and someone's like, hey, I got... A hundred of X coin, and you know I'm willing to sell those today to somebody for ten dollars per coin. And someone's like, "Yo, I'll do that." Okay, you know, send me half now, I'll pay you, then you send me the other half. And so, right? I mean, there's risk right there. Both sides are accepting risks, like shady drug deal or something. You know, the one person sends half the amount of X coins over to the other person's wallet. Person Venmo's or PayPal's or Cash Apps or somebody that cash back to the other person. And that person sends the remainder of those exponents over to that person. And now you have a cryptocurrency transaction that really isn't recorded, right? The only way to piece that transaction together would be for one of those two people to say, yes, this is why I bought that. Because there's nothing concrete connecting those two transactions because they were done independent on independent systems. Um, you know, I mean, there's... There's a lot of people that don't like Cash App and Venmo and things for that very reason. Especially in the beginning, they were very rogue. And they have instituted, you know, controls. So, you know, you can't hide taxes or lender money and all those kind of things through those means. But they're still pretty hard to get the data on. And you almost have to go to the court system to do it. But when you literally have no association in that Cash App or Venmo account with some other completely random 
cryptocurrency transaction. And if you really wanted to be careful about doing it, right, you wouldn't do it at the same time. You do it at different times. Maybe make three different three different payments of different amounts, um, right? Maybe over a week. Maybe you do the same thing with your cryptocurrency. Make it look like some random payments are happening out or something from like a pool or something. Like there's ways you can make it really look inconspicuous. You'd have no definitive evidence to ever tie those two transactions together outside of the two people knowing that that's what they did. Obviously, if they're doing it like in a Discord server and there's other people listening to them, right? I'm talking about like private conversations. Or it doesn't have to even be in a Discord server. Two people can meet up at a park or Best Buy, right? And be like, hey, I have an old one of these I want to sell. I was like, oh, yeah? Well, I'll tell you what. You're buying a new one. I'll buy your old one. Maybe it's a camera or something. I'll buy it from you in crypto. So let me send you some, right? And so, boom, the transaction happens. And in that case, there's not even any money, right? It's just goods. So one person's getting handed a camera in person. The other person's getting a transfer of cryptocurrency. And there's going to be no record of that, right? There's going to be no record that cryptocurrency was used to buy some used good. It's very much like cash at that point, except for the transaction will exist on the blockchain. So you'll actually know that this wallet did pass X amount of coins to this other wallet. You're not going to know anything else. There will be no other way to find it out. But when you're using these centralized exchanges, and for the most part, I don't want to call them day traders, but sort of these, and I don't really want to use amateurs because a lot of, there's not really, there's very few cryptocurrency professionals at this point, but just your average people who are out there buying cryptocurrency, they're storing them in these exchanges. And they're never actually pulling those coins into their own wallet that they are the only ones who know the keys to that wallet. You know, there's a price of crypto. Maybe I said it before, you know, not your keys, not your crypto. What that means is that these exchanges actually are holding all this crypto in their own wallets. And all you own, like I mentioned in some of my previous discussions about the financial system, all you own is some digits in an account that are holding for you. And so basically what you really own is your right to extract those coins to some other wallet or send them to some other wallet. You don't actually have them in your possession, and there's nothing you can do yourself with those coins. You have to rely on that exchange to send those coins anywhere. So that exchange goes down, or they lose internet connect, or you lose internet activity. But nothing's happening, right? You're stuck. You can't do anything. Um, where the other, the other option is you get your own wallet, and there's a number of ways to have your own wallet. You know, I'm not going to go into you know the, the minutia of the of the pretty pretty common and simple details actually, but once you get them, then you have your coins on your in, on they're on the blockchain still. Like they don't go anywhere. So I hate using that phraseology, but I mean that's kind of what's happening at that point. You control them, and only you. You don't have to log into an account. You don't have to you know hit a transaction and go through a bunch of screens on a website to make it happen. Literally, you go into your wallet, you click send, you put in how much you want to send, you put in what wallet it's going to, the address for that wallet, and you click send and you're done. And it's only you. There's no verification. There's no pause. There's no bank sending you a, a, a code to confirm your transaction. Right? It's boom. You're in control. You're the only one that's in the control and you're the only one that knows what's happening. But most people don't have it that way. It requires, you know, some knowledge of running some slightly obscure computer programs on your own computer. And, you know, we're in this era that I'll talk to and talk about in some later episodes about moving away from personal computers into this really lab, laptop, tablet, phone reality, right? There's not that many people anymore 
that are buying nuking home personal computers, like with a tower and a separate monitor and all that stuff, right? And not that I'm saying everyone needs that. Um, most laptops today are powerful enough, but what it does require, or I mean, I guess what the impact of that is, is there's a less or a lessening or a reduction in the capability with regards to computer programs, computer operating systems, installing, not like, right, I mean, Windows 10, you just go in, you find an app, you add it, like the App Store, the Apple Store, all these things, right? That's how most people know how to install stuff. But if you don't have that, right, then you actually have to run some programs on your actual computer, and you got to configure some different files and set it up, different things, maybe you got to deal with some antivirus issues, right? That is a knowledge base that's dwindling because people just aren't using PCs. You know, like outside of gamers um, and some other IT folks, there's not really a need for anyone to have powerful computers. Maybe, obviously, graphic design people um, get some, you know, machine learning different, you know, I think. But unless you're, if you're not doing computer-related things, you don't really have a need for that powerful computer. And, and knowing that's different, right? Because before laptops became so affordable and so ubiquitous, People were buying Dell's gateways out of the box, right? You could go on there, you could design your own computer, you could buy a fairly, you know, cheap desktop computer with a tower, you know, you pick your monitor size, you pick your hard drive size, all that stuff, right? And you just do things from a menu and they ship it right out to you. Tablets today are just about as powerful as some of those initial, you know, gateways were back in back in the, the beginning, you know, of all of this stuff. And so anyway, I just wanted to, to follow up all of this stuff. And now that I've talked this long, I'm just going to tell you, you know, you're probably wondering what the hell I was talking about, but I'm just going to make this a whole separate episode because I'm here too long talking about this. And it was just such a coincidence that I recorded that whole thing. Um, and then the very next day, we get this, this big hack on this exchange that's kind of really was the whole point of yesterday's conversation, right? The government doesn't care yet about cryptocurrency that much. Because they can still find it out. You can't hide it, right? People people that are using it isn't sophisticated enough yet or haven't taken the ways to figure out how to get past it. And if that's likely to be remedied eventually, like the more people who adopt accepting cryptocurrency as payment, then the more options someone who steals cryptocurrency has to actually use it. But right now, there just isn't really that many, right? It's like stealing somebody's stocks. Right? How would you steal a stock? Right? I mean, if you know anything about stocks, they're theoretically they're actually paper things. Or at least they used to be. Right? You get them and you have your name on them, all those kind of things. Um, but you know, when it comes to no kidding, who owns a stock for somebody? Right? Unless you're literally buying direct stock. Most of the time, when you own a mutual fund, you probably don't even actually own the exact stock, right? You own some share of that fund, which owns stocks, right? And so that's where, right, you get kind of like those exchanges. You don't actually own your crypto. You own the right to some amount of crypto that that exchange owns versus um, via the amount of money that you've paid them. And if some random... So back to this hack, right? The, the guy started giving some money back, and I assume it's a guy because, I mean, I mean, it could be a girl. Generally, there aren't that many female criminals in the world in terms of things like this or anything. I mean, you think about the worst crimes in history. Very few of them are um, female. That's just kind of the reality. Or if they are, they're just the best at it and they never get caught. So if we'll say, you know, it is what it is. And the company went out there and said, you know, blacklist this guy. Don't let him transfer any of these things. Blacklist all these walls that they went to. Don't let any of this money move 
out of the wall instead of in, and um, and at the same time, they were encouraging this person to give it back. Now, there's some weirdness in that, because the guy did start giving it back, which leads me to believe that there's some other things going on behind the scenes here that we haven't that haven't been revealed or reported yet. But you know, to go back to the conversation, you know, previously on the episode, maybe he got a phone call from the government. So I'm just saying, hey, you know, I know you're this hacker and you think you just did something amazing by hacking this thing in, but we're you know powerful world governments who employ thousands of hackers who are the you know the best the money can buy and we already know who you are and what you did so you know maybe go ahead and just put that money back and maybe we'll let bygones be bygones or whatever because theoretically here's what could happen and this is why the criminal would still have leverage even if you knew who they were you move that $600 million to what's called a paper wallet, which is just a wallet, a cryptocurrency wallet you put on your computer, and the passphrase, which they call keys, is just usually a series of random words. The only way to access that wallet is to make sure you have those keys. And if you write those keys down on a piece of paper, and you don't memorize them, and you close that wallet and uninstall it from your computer or delete your old hard drive, the only way you're ever getting that currency back has to re-download that wallet, reinstall it, and then use the, that passphrase, those keywords, re-access your wallet through the program. But if you were to stick a lighter and burn that piece of paper into ash, and you didn't memorize those key phrases, that money is gone. That cryptocurrency is gone. It is never coming back. It will be locked in a wallet that no one has access to for, until the end of time. And so... When a cryptocurrency, you know, hacker steals a bunch of that stuff and moves it to some wallet like that, they immediately have leverage. Because even if they get caught, it's not like, you know, they stole a bunch of gold, right? You can't just really destroy gold. You know, I mean, you could dump it in the ocean, you could bury it, you could melt it down. I mean, theoretically, you could probably do some chemical process to change gold. But at the end of the day, most of, even if you did, the underlying element of gold is still going to be in whatever material you create. So you can never really just destroy something like gold. And so um, you capture someone who stole some gold, and they're always going to be able to tell you what they did with it. Maybe they may not know where it is. They have it on this train, and I don't know where it went from there, but they'll know what they did with it, right? And theoretically, it's still going to exist somewhere in the world, and all they got to do is find it. Um, same thing with cash. Cash is a little bit different. It's kind of middle ground, right? You're going to steal the cash. You're going to do something with it, right? Um, and, and, but here's where cash is different. The only way to really get rid of cash would be to, like, set it on fire, right? Or shred it or dissolve it in asset. I mean, you could steal $500 million in cash from a bank and freaking dump it in the ocean. You could burn it, right? And no one would ever get that back, right? But you would know what happened with it, right? That, that money was gone. And here's the difference with money. If you knew it was gone, and it just and you and it literally got destroyed, right? If you knew it was destroyed, so there's a difference between transferred and destroyed. But if cash was literally destroyed, and you knew that it was, and you could like find the ashes, you could theoretically just print new money to replace that money that was destroyed, right? Now, whether that actually ever happens or not, good. I mean, that's I'm just you know speculating in terms of possibility. But with the way the blockchain works, if you lose keys to a wallet that has cryptocurrency in it, the only, well, in theory, there's no way to get it back. The only way to do it would be basically to destroy the, the blockchain, which would basically devalue all of it anyway, so then it would just cease to exist. And so, 
it's just not an option. And so uh, somebody who steals cryptocurrency has a little bit more leverage than somebody else who steals something. Um, and so the motivation for authorities, if they happen to have an idea who this might have been, it might have been people on the phone dude, you know who you are. Um, right? We're going to say we know who everyone is and what they have for breakfast. And he's like, yeah, you're right. Okay, you guys got me. Because he made all these weird things. Like, he sent a message. He started sending it back. And he put a message, like, in the code of the transaction. Like, you can put notes in there. And he was like, I just did this for fun. Aha, uh-huh, like a smiley face or something. And then I think he made some comments like, I was just doing this to, to demonstrate the vulnerability before, you know, some insiders or some other evildoers, you know, took it upon themselves to exploit this and make make money from it in a way that can't be unwound or fixed or whatever. So I don't know if he's giving it all back. Um, and maybe, right, if they knew who he was, maybe there's a deal. It gets put in place like, okay, you can keep $50 million and we'll leave you alone as long as you get the other $550 million back. And then, you know, and, and however that would play out, right? I mean, obviously we're just speculating. We'd be a lot more involved in that, and they probably just wouldn't let the guy off scot-free, depending on what he was doing and who he, and who he did anything to, and what kind of evidence they might have to. Like, maybe the evidence that they had that it was him was flimsy, you know, or, and, and by flimsy, I don't mean, like, they don't know who it is. Flimsy as in, probably couldn't use it in court if you wanted to prosecute him. And so, they're not, Taking him to court and prosecuting for another option. So, right, they got to come up with creative solutions. And, you know, that's what they do. We'll get him to pay it back and then let him keep some of it, whatever, and say, thank you for finding this problem. Enjoy your windfall of a few million dollars from your hack. Don't do it again, kind of thing. Now you're on a radar. That was your one. Get out of jail free. I mean, who knows? Like, this is all purely speculation. But the way this played out was really odd. Um,. And, you know, I'm just telling you what I've seen, too. So there's likely lots of stuff that I haven't seen yet and things that aren't going to be reported. And like I said, um, if you remember the ransomware attacks, um, it came out that, like, they had been in contact with those hackers, like, for a few days before we even knew about it, like, trying to get the stuff unlocked and whatnot and, like, negotiating deals. So, like, the whole thing, uh, there's a lot of stuff that probably went on in the background there. And who knows, there was a lot of a lot of people in the cryptocurrency were just like wildly alarmed by the response of the exchange. And like they're just gonna take down cryptocurrency as a concept to try to unwind something that ultimately was their own fault for having a vulnerability in there, right? And that really, you know, shook some people in the cryptocurrency because like we can't allow this kind of knee jerk reaction to I mean, you're talking about at this point, maybe trillions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency, definitely billions, right? And so, like, I mean, you're just going to literally destroy billions and millions of dollars by devaluing all this stuff if you take this kind of action. So don't do it, especially when it's your own fault that it got stolen. And um, that was kind of an interesting take. And honestly, it wasn't my first my first thought when I heard that. I was like, well, I mean, if they can do that. I mean, my first thought, I mean, it was, I, I skipped ahead. I was like, I mean, if they can just do that then what's the big deal about cryptocurrency? It's clearly not that big a risk, because why is anyone going to steal stuff they can't do anything with? They can't use it. Um, You know, if they can just go blacklist these vaults and do all this stuff, then there's really not that much risk out there. The response from, like, the community was like, this is a terrible idea, this is just going to destroy cryptocurrency, blah, 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 and we don't want that, we want to maintain value. I mean, of course, all these people are invested in cryptocurrency, and so 
they have personal stakes to lose, uh, you know, should it burn down. But, I mean, the point is true. And, you know, there's definitely purists out there and everything. And the cryptocurrency purists, they love cryptocurrency because it doesn't use banks. It is as decentralized at the moment as anything else is. And it could become even more decentralized. Like, you know, once... Once vendors start accepting it, like, you know, there's some countries in South America that are trying to make it, uh, you know, their national currency. I think some of those silly, what is called them, leftist communist tech countries think that it's a way for them to maybe get around sanctions or, you know, not be controlled by the power of the U.S. dollar or something like that. But um, the more they do it, I mean, it gives you a place to spend it. And unlike bank transactions... There's nothing, there's no, there's no international or national infrastructure that you really have to pass through. Like, the international banking system has, like, gates and different things and numbers and identifiers and all these kind of rules. Like, there's no rules for me to send some cryptocurrency from right now from here to Venezuela. Like, as long as the internet works, it's going to go. And no one's going to know that it happened after it happens. There's no proof. Like, when I say that the blockchain records everything, it does. But it doesn't alert anyone that it's happening. It doesn't know that. It's not intelligent, and it doesn't have a checksum. So it's not going to say X wallet is trying to send money to this other wallet, and this other wallet is in some country that doesn't allow cryptocurrencies, you know, aka China or something. We're not going to let that happen. No, it doesn't work that way. Like The blockchain has no idea that anything is coming, and it sure as hell doesn't know where it's at. All it knows, because, and again, I'll try not to turn this into a crash course on cryptocurrency, so I just encourage you that if you're curious about how it knows that, or I mean how it doesn't know that, it's the way that the verification piece works, in that the information gets transferred to all of these nodes that are mining all over the planet, and they use that decentralized consensus network validate these things. And so if you're curious how that works, I encourage you to go look it up and read it. I probably wouldn't even explain it correctly and I definitely couldn't do it in a short amount of time. And so but that's I mean that's the gist of it. And because of that, it's not forward looking. It just records things. It doesn't know what's happening until it shows up as having been verified by, you know, tens of thousands of machines and calculations all over the planet. You know, and so, I mean, that's probably enough for today. Maybe we'll learn more about this. Hopefully something else doesn't just happen or some some information comes out that that basically says everything I just told you was a lie and none of that was true, that, that was reported today. But, you know, I think I'll probably do another one on this. This whole cryptocurrency thing, actually, the more I think about it, and like I said, this, this whole podcast, all these different topics, it's purely organic, spur of the moment, and it's starting to really begin to dovetail with that initial concept piece I did on mega corporations. And I think I'll have a piece or another episode soon on the Olympics. I'm trying to like, I want to do an episode on the Olympics. I don't wanna the problem is it as I started thinking about it, it really sounded like an attack on the Olympics and that's not really what I intend. But I do want to do one that sort of just explores kind of the concept of the Olympics and what it's become and what it looks like. It's just Every day, and I was going through every single day, I read something about the Olympics, and I'm like, what? Like, how is that Olympics, you know? Or, oh my god, how is there... You know, I'll get into it. I mean, you may have seen some of the stuff, like... And I'm actually glad I didn't record the episode yet, because all a bunch of new stuff has happened, like the horses, and, like, the men's... Or the women's soccer team. There's all kinds of stuff. So, you know, to finish up here, 
we have a hack. We have a corruption or a breach in the security of a cryptocurrency. We have a big hack stolen, and immediately it starts to be remedied in a very weirdly way. And if some amateur guy can hack in his head at this for fun just to expose it, then you know that the government can do these things also. Um, is the government poking around in these cryptocurrency exchanges to see where the vulnerabilities are so maybe they can track people that might do it? Maybe. I'm not plugged into what kind of research they really do, you know, white hat hacking type of things that, you know, how much groundwork do they go out there and lay as new things pop up for them to go back and start poking around when things start happening because they've already laid some resources down in the beginning, they're able to figure some stuff out and track these people. Don't know any of that. Sure, it's wildly classified and it would all be rumor and conspiracy theory if I didn't know about it, but there's another example of why the government I think is really not all that concerned about it is because it's really not that big of a problem. You know, can you move money around? Could you could you do some transactions with cash in hand and trade in cryptocurrency, you know, like for a drug cartel or something? Yeah, I mean you could and but the problem still that doesn't really change anything because you could do that anyway, right? Any in any country where you could go around with briefcases of cash and live in a, a highly cash environment that doesn't change anything. That's not unique to cryptocurrency, and regulating cryptocurrency is not going to change that, right? Those are really based on the economic systems of where that's possible. You can't really do that in the U.S., right? I mean, you could in small amounts over a long period of time, but you're not, just not going to show up somewhere in the United States and buy something with $50,000 worth of cash in a briefcase, right? Like, you go to a bank, you know, that's going to trigger something, and very few people want to put $50,000 in cash in their house I mean, if you do, you know, you can live on it for the rest of, you know, however long you're going to use that 50000 and just bleed it out slowly. So it's not impossible, but it it's not a get-rich-quick scheme because it's just impractical, at least in this country, right? Other countries, it makes more sense. But in the United States, that kind of, it's doable, but it would be a lot of work and you risk getting caught pretty easily. Creative people are doing it and they're getting away with it, right? That's obvious. So it is doable, but it's not something the average person or the average criminal is going to be able to hop on a computer and use cryptocurrency to do that same kind of thing. And so I don't think law enforcement agencies at this point are all that concerned about it. Um, you know, when you can start buying missiles in cryptocurrency, then maybe they become worried about it. And maybe, you know, if some places pop up, you know, we don't really have them anymore. You don't hear about them, you know, the tax havens, the offshore accounts and things like that, maybe Switzerland, right? Maybe they'll let you have a bank account that, that kicks out cash for crypto that's untraceable because of the way Switzerland works. Those aren't there yet. Maybe we'll get them eventually. Maybe we won't. Who knows? But the law enforcement seems like they're better at dealing with this than even the crypto exchanges are. People who like make a living in this area. And again, there are changes coming to those um, exchanges and those centralization points with the infrastructure bill, um, at least what's been proposed. So, you know, if you're curious in that, take a look. I don't even know where that bill is right now and, you know, how much it's got to go through committees yet, still get changes, or what the exact final text is going to look like. But once you do, I mean, the, the word is right now that in there somewhere is some kind of regulation of some of these crypto exchanges, right, these centralization points that 
that tie the normal money system to the cryptocurrency system, and that through that there might be some taxing or something that raises some money for, for infrastructure and adds some regulation. But it doesn't look like at the moment cryptocurrency itself as an entity or as a blockchain network or anything like that is not going to... There aren't any changes aimed at that. You know, and that might be actually a good topic next would be how would the government go about putting some real regulation on cryptocurrency? Because I don't know, I'm not sure now thinking about it that it's that possible or, or very valuable. It seems like, you know, I'll just finish up with this to think about until next time. A lot of times when the government wants to go after something, they go after who's going to profit from it the most, right? Think about drugs, right? Um, think about guns, right? They want to control guns. They don't go after individual gun owners. They go after gun manufacturers, gun sellers, retailers, right? If you want to control gas prices or emissions or put taxes on gasoline, you don't extract that from, you don't make a consumer write a check to the government. You go after the oil companies, right, or the gas companies. And so that is a, probably a lesson to keep in mind as where are the regulation's best position to achieve some goal in the cryptocurrency industry, you know, and that might be those exchanges, at least for the time being. They're really the only place that um, does anything that really gives the federal government any power to do. Um, so we will address that soon. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, I apologize for the change of direction from my comments at the beginning about this being a short add-on. It turned out to be just a whole new episode just because... To really discuss all that took a lot longer than I actually thought it was, and if I'm rambling, I apologize again. I'm not gonna not editing for content or time or scripting this out or anything like that. So, you know, if you're enjoying it, thank you. Nice to have you, and I'll see you soon.